0: Hello and welcome to City Community Culture with me, Sam Bergen.
1: Talking about the ghetto, funky, funky ghetto, trying to survive, trying to stay alive. one rule in the real world, and that's to take care of you, only you and yours, keep dealing with the hard times day after day, might deal me some dope, but then crime don't pay, black man trying to break in my house again, thought he got off the dope doing time in the pen, even though my brothers do me just like that, I get a lot of love, so I'm giving it back to the the
0: That was The Ghetto by Too Short, use and used under fair use for quotation, critique or review. Based on a sample from Donnie Hathaway's 1970s soul hit of the same name, The Ghetto is typical of early 90s West Coast rap, with the lyrics claiming to depict the living conditions of America's poorer black urban population. In the song, Too Short is talking about drugs, guns, death, bravado, masculinity, respect, crime, and doing jail time, all of which he associates with a specific geographical, urban, and stereotyped area of the city, the ghetto. But ghettos have existed for centuries. The first was Ghetto Nuovo, which opened in Venice in 1516. This was a quarter of the city where Jewish citizens lived lived, which was heavily policed by the city authorities, surrounded by a wall and with a curfew that meant people had to be back in that area by nightfall. From the beginning then, the history of the ghetto is a history of containing ethnic communities in certain spaces in the city, often through discriminatory, racist and oppressive policing practices. And during World War Two, The practice of purposefully concentrating ethnic minorities within specific parts of the city was deployed heavily by the Nazis, who used this practice to oppress Jews across European cities. But throughout the 20th century we see the rise of African-American enclaves in American cities. Due to the continuation of denying basic civil rights in the South, six million black Americans moved to northern U.S. cities between 1900 and 1970, finding themselves concentrated to specific neighbourhoods, often with poorer housing conditions and public services. This ghettoization was a direct result of racist housing practices from landlords, who refused to rent to black Americans in white parts of the city, as well as discrimination in the job market, which meant that these communities had less money to choose middle and upper class neighbourhoods. There were also other formal examples of control, which led to the formation of the ghetto. Redlining was where African-Americans were systematically declined mortgages or rental agreements in white areas. Or another technique used was blockbusting where real estate agents would move black families into a white area on purpose, manipulating racist prejudices to drive down land values. They would then buy those houses at a bargain and rent them out out at heavily inflated costs to black families. Once these neighborhoods had been established by newcomers to the city, however, it's poverty that then becomes the force field that perpetuates and maintains the ghetto. People from these stigmatised and under-resourced neighbourhoods face many obstacles, including employment, education and a lack of residential mobility. But as well as material deprivation, the history of the Ghetto is also one of problematic and stigmatising symbolism, with many negative connotations attached to it. We might ask, therefore, what it means to depict these areas of the city in this way For example, urban ethnographer Elijah Anderson writes about what he calls the iconic ghetto as a cultural phenomenon. For Anderson, the ghetto is repeatedly presented in popular culture and mainstream media as quotes, the place where the black people live. It symbolises impoverished, crime prone, drug infested and violent areas of the city. Anderson pointed out that these images are played out again and again in popular culture and the media, achieving an iconic status. The ghetto image is therefore a powerful source of stereotypes, prejudice and discrimination, and it means that just by living in one part of the city, your life opportunities and experiences can be vastly shaped by this cultural narrative. We can even see how this shapes the way in which other citizens of the city use and move through urban space, such as actively avoiding those areas that have a ghetto reputation. This can even be hard-baked into algorithms, such as sat-nav technologies, including the previously named Ghetto Tracker, which, after public backlash, changed their name to Good Part of Town. These apps use crime statistics to lead people around supposed ghettos, playing into white fear of areas which are associated with that iconic image of the ghetto, promising to get the user from point A to point B using the quickest but also safest route. But as Lydia Kinnears has pointed out in her 27 article, My City, My Hood, My Street, Hip-hop has always been closely related to the urban environment from its inception in the 1970s, and references to space have various functions in hip-hop music, including the potential to express group identity through references to blocks, hoods, or streets. And in this way, this use of the term ghetto in context pulls through that history of racist policing and control that's always been associated with this term. To call an area a ghetto through hip-hop is to draw attention to the way in which these areas are established, manipulated, oppressed and neglected, as ghettos have been throughout history. In 1988, the Kerner Report argued that white society was deeply implicated in the perpetuation of the ghetto in the US, stating that white institutions have created the ghetto, they maintain the ghetto and they condone the ghetto. We therefore have this double bind. On the one hand, the image of the iconic ghetto plays into racist stereotypes and prejudices. And on the other, it's used and reclaimed through hip hop and rap as a way to highlight the mechanisms of control and policing and oppression that are taking place in these parts of the city. Tell
1: them about it too sure? So just keep the game and don't call it crap, cause to me, Life is one hard rap. Even though my sister smoked crack cocaine, she was nine months pregnant, ain't nothing changed. Six hundred million on a football team, and her baby died just like a dope fiend. The story I tell is so incomplete. Five kids in the house, no food to eat. Don't look at me and don't ask me why. Mama's next door, getting high. Even though she's got five miles to feed, she'd rather spend her money on the HIT. I always tell the truth about things like this I wonder if the mayor overlooked that list Instead of adding to the task force, send some help Waiting on him, I better help myself Housing authority and the OPD All these guns just to handle me and get ghetto People are down.
0: The ghetto then is an example of the way in which inequality is spatialised in the city, as well as perpetuated both materially and symbolically. In this way stereotypes and prejudice are built into the urban fabric, leading to avoidance and isolation measures that minimise exposure, contact and encounters with difference. High net worth individuals, the super rich, are increasingly adopting a lifestyle where they can move through urban spaces seamlessly, without friction, without ever touching the ground or having to encounter difference. For example, through a combination of private jets, helicopter transfers and private cars which can move from one underground car park to another, this is a group of people who rarely have to step foot on the street. In his book, The Alpha City, Roland Atkinson refers to these as alpha transport networks, which create an experience of the city that shapes the egoism and entitlement of the super-rich. The urban environment through these mechanisms is rendered bespoke for this class, creating spaces which are crafted for the wealthy in mind and removing any need for cohabitation with other citizens and avoiding unsightly spaces. A clear example of this will to divide the city is in the rise of those gilded ghettos, otherwise known as gated communities. These are residential areas and developments which are fenced or walled off from their surroundings prohibiting or controlling access by means of gates, booms, telecoms, CCTV, security guards and other technologies. These tightly defended enclaves have an effect on the wider city. For example, the development of these rich areas, specifically designed to attract the middle and upper classes, can push land values up in central city spaces, making it more unaffordable for poorer communities to live there. Gator communities have also blamed for what Atkinson has called the death of the public city. The properly urban world of communal support, public services and community is increasingly put under strain by this geographical removal of people from the public sphere. Outside of the Gator community, the right to the city and notions of a citizen's right to support, safety, health and education are becoming increasingly subject to negotiation. By privatising and enclosing urban spaces, therefore, they are also reducing the political demand for better public services. Instead, hoarding resources within their own community to pay for their own services and urban infrastructure. It has also been argued that the city is becoming more spiky as a result of these trends more hostile. The city is being divided, segregated, separated, and perhaps nowhere is this kind of separating behavior more extreme than with the super-rich, who often display the techniques and technologies of isolation from the city, which are then later mimicked by the middle classes. Such trends as these might be interpreted as a kind of middle-class revanchism, reclaiming the urban center on behalf of a largely white, relatively wealthy and formerly suburban part of the population. And as a result, domestic domestic spaces are becoming fortified and bunkered on a more general level. What we are seeing is a proliferation of technologies that separate, conceal, and secure those with wealth based upon fear, wariness, and feelings of risk and insecurity. In their work on domestic fortresses, Atkinson and Blandy talk about a trend in housing architecture which has created neighbourhoods that are increasingly hostile and anxiety ridden. The rise of large industries built upon defensive designs and technologies, they argue, is evidence that some communities seem to be displacing fears insecurities and prejudices onto the built environment itself, with homes and suburbs taking on the look and feel of increasingly secured, militarized terrains. Fortress homes with panic rooms, CCTV and security guards, gates and spikes, fortified walls, strengthened windows and doors, are seen as managing and blocking out the risky world and impressions of risky others who do not belong. They are celebrations of retreat and fortification, architectural representations of our fears, which are steadily creating a tessellated urban landscape of compounds, gated communities and enclaves. One way in which we can picture the way in which these fearful divisions are being spatialized across the city is by focusing on suburbanization. To understand the suburbs, we might find it instructive to start with American cities, where class and race divisions intersected with a culture of post-war prosperity. As Resnick put it in their um, Atlantic article, the suburbs are a cornerstone of the American dream, but that dream looks very different in black and white. In US cities, the 1950s aspiration was for success and status, which was represented by being able to obtain new domestic technologies, washing machines, vacuum cleaners and cars. and These inventions were wrapped up in a suburban idyll which saw white middle class citizens aspire to move out to the suburbs and yet still access their jobs in the city centre. This white flight was also pushed by racist fears of inner city decay which was indirectly worsened by a loss of tax base and political abandonment. The suburbs, on the other hand, took on the characteristics of conspicuous consumption, which entailed racial and economic exclusivity, as well as a concentration of gendered divisions of domestic labour in the figure of the suburban housewife. If you zoomed right out today, it might look like the American suburbs, such as Long Island, are perhaps becoming more diverse. And yet what Resnick has found is that they are dividing at the same time. Focusing on Long Island in New York, Resnick points out that there's an invisible wall separating Hempstead, which has low rise apartment buildings, a median household income of 52K a year, and which is 92% black and Hispanic, separated from Garden City, with suburban tree-lined streets and large colonial-era homes with a median income of 152 k and 88% white. Now let's turn to the UK example. In the early 20th century there were a number of proposals from urban planners which sought to address substandard Industrial Revolution-era housing. As a precursor to state-led versions of gentrification today, it was supposed that the problems associated with poorer areas of the city could be eliminated through slum clearances and redevelopment. The goal was to move people away from the city centre. Some suburbs were established by philanthropic industrialists who founded worker villages such as Bourneville in South Birmingham, which was established by Cadbury in 1900, or New Earswick in York, which was established by Roundtree in 1904. These experiments later inspired the idea of garden cities, which sought to build new towns outside of major UK cities, such as Garden City and Milton Keynes, which would then be linked with transport to the central city, in effect creating a commuter suburban belt. These towns were pictured and marketed as the antidote to inner city decay and the fear of the working classes and ethnic minorities. They offered instead a vision of security and family life, which is still associated with the suburbs today. So in this way, we can see how the suburbs represent the way in which urban inequalities have been spatialized over the last century or last couple of centuries. Suburbanisation was seen as progress and a way to solve inner-city housing problems using planning, yet it created further spatial divisions and hierarchies. The suburbs became a heteronormative, patriarchal white space, lauded by popular culture in the 1990s as a stultifying and fake experience which then spurred a move towards revanchism and a search for authenticity which the white middle classes today have saw in the city centre through gentrification and gated communities. In order to find some examples of this, I visited a gated community and a wealthy street in the south and west of Sheffield. So I'm here in the, in the wealthier suburbs of Western Sheffield, outside a cul-de-sac called Ballard Hall Chase. This is listed unusually on Google as a gated community. So I'm gonna try and walk around this cul-de-sac and see what the clues are to that separation. So I've parked on the street and the first thing you notice is the high walls. I'd say about maybe seven, eight foot high surrounding the whole cul-de-sac. And in the wall are a series of back gates leading to people's gardens, each one fortified with a heavy duty lock on them representing a kind of securitization of this space trying to prevent people from getting in as I move around the outside I can see the tops of the buildings in the community and the top floor is kind of um, grey panels which look very kind of bunker like almost like mini fortresses Okay, and now I found the gate. This is Ballard Hall Court. The gate is black. It's heavy duty. It has the postcode in it S10. And there's an intercom. Above the intercom is a sign for small deliveries to Ballard Hall Court, please use the front door, which is located further up Tapton Park Road. So, this is not a good entrance to get in. And to my right is the bin store, which has also got a heavy duty gate and a lock on it. only if someone tries to steal the bins. As I walk around the outside of the wall, I think what strikes me the most is how unhomely these buildings look. They don't look very comfortable. If you think about them in terms of domestic fortresses, it's definitely an emphasis on security, rather than homeliness perhaps based on a fear of who is outside of this community and the kind of people that they perceive as not wanting in this space i can see the through the uh, gates now there's a few cars in the community one of which is a Land Rover Defender heavily um, armoured in many ways vehicle you obviously designed for the army originally. And again, this is a kind of situation where you might jump in your Land Rover behind the gates, get to where you're going, and just be completely secured as you move through the city, never having to touch base with anyone on the ground. You can also see in there now security lights, alarms. I'm looking for cameras, but I can't see any CCTV but there is of course the um, intercoms based on the gate. I'm now walking past the church which is just on the edge of the estate. It's very well kept. The grass is short, the borders are neat and across the road is um, quite a posh looking pub. And at the entrance to the church is a sign that says private property No parking except on church business. I'm on the other side of the gated community now and on the other side of the road is Notre Dame High School which looks like it could be a private school. Very posh buildings in there. And here now there's another very posh looking pub. The Florentine surrounded by tall trees and greenery just feels very um, suburban, very I- idyllic in many ways. And the trees kind of act as I-, I don't know, like a symbolic barrier as to the kind of space this is and who belongs here and who doesn't. And I'm back round to the entrance to ballad Hall Chase again. What you notice about these houses is, is just how few entrances there are into the buildings they're very square they're very flat the windows are very small and not all of them seem to open the doors have very small windows on perhaps you can see who's on the outside but you can't see in and the garage doors are tightly fitted on the ground floor of each property they're just you can't see into any of these houses So I'm now in the southwest of Sheffield on Whirlow Park Road, well known as one of the most expensive roads in the city, with houses easily going for over a million pounds. I notice in the corner down here there's a new house being built, a luxury bespoke home with a sweeping staircase built by the exclusive developer Blenheim Park Developments. As well as the um, price bracket, I'm looking for clues as to how they maintain this as such an exclusive street. The houses are absolutely enormous, a lot of them have very long driveways which put them back from the road, meaning that they maintain a sense of distance from the public space of the street. I'm just walking past my first gate, number 25. And there's a sign on the gate, SYSS security, warning, CCTV recorded and monitored for crime prevention and public safety. Probably means I've been filmed now. Not that I gave any consent to be filmed, and I'm just on the street, public space. But there we go. And now coming up to the second house, has a doorbell on the outside, a telecom. And again, massive driveway, house put back from the road, so you can't see into the house. Maintains a sense of distance. There's so few people on the streets in a neighbourhood like this. No social interaction going on at all. Just gone past a house that had a massive outdoor pool that I could see, now going past another which has a Bentley and a Range Rover. It's probably worth pointing out that whilst all these houses are massive, they're not all in good nick, kind of suggesting that some of these houses have been here a bit longer. You know, the wealth is in the land that it's on rather than the building itself. The exclusiveness of the postcode is what gives the property its value. Here's another sign for South Yorkshire Security Solutions, warning CCTV. And over here on the other side of the road, there's a much more discreet red sign from a company called Verishore. And it's red with the image of a policeman on it. It says, guard response, 24 hours. kind of suggests that they wouldn't rely on the police if something happened around here they've set up their own private security measures maybe more exclusive more rapid response more willing to act if something should happen or if a stranger with a tape recorder was walking down the road makes you feel very uncomfortable But it's also evidence of the way in which these kinds of communities don't rely on public services. I'm sure if they could, they would not pay the council tax that they have to pay around here for which goes into a big pot for the rest of the city to use. I imagine a lot of people who live here have accountants and find creative ways to avoid paying different types of tax anyway. It's all about hoarding your resources. The problem with communities like this is as soon as a stranger walks down the street, he's gonna be immediately treated with suspicion. Why is this person in this area? Every house has some sort of CCTV warning on it. It means that you'd rarely encounter difference I imagine they rarely can't encounter each other looking at the lack of people on the street. And this house here is absolutely beautiful. The way it's been built, it's kind of white. It's got these clean lines on it, wooden cladding. And then right in the middle of it, morning, CCTV, cameras in operation, an enormous yellow sign just ruining the aesthetic of it. And just stood here, I can see... Four different security cameras, both on the ground floor and the upper floor, and on the roof you can see a wire that goes around the outside of the flat roof. might be an alert system as well i 'm still yet to see anyone. This is a space that just seems completely devoid of any social interaction it 's all private families behind their gates and walls set back from the road hiding themselves behind alarms CCTV security measures don't So what do these centrifugal trends of urban segregation mean for cohesion in the city? In 2006, as part of a public speech, Prime Minister Tony Blair pointed the finger at Muslim communities as most in need of integration into what he called shared British values. This idea was then echoed in 2014 by the Education Secretary, Michael Gove, who sought to install, "quotes British values into the national curriculum as a response to the so-called Trojan horse scandal in Birmingham, where a hoax letter claimed that extreme terrorist views were being taught in schools. This is an example of the way in which urban segregations and divisions are being reduced down to questions of cultural difference, prejudice and apparently conflicting value systems. The argument here is that the reason there is a lack of community cohesion is because some communities, i.e. communities of color, are given the blame for self-segregating themselves. Rather than self-segregation representing a choice of where to live in the city, as it would if you were white, This is instead portrayed as an active and problematic choice by ethnic minorities to reject mainstream culture and segregate themselves in British cities. When the problem of division is framed in this way, the logical answer for policymakers is to then target ethnic minorities with disciplinary approaches, forcing them to accept the government's hegemonic version of so-called British values. Meanwhile, any suggestion that we might address material inequality in poorer parts of the city becomes replaced by a narrative which promotes removing cultural differences. Both ghettos and gated communities are examples of the way in which cities are segregated, not just socially, but also materially and spatially. Both are the result of wider social, political, and economic structures and struggles which concentrate and spatialise inequality in the city. These are then perpetuated through the way in which these spaces are represented and portrayed through the media, through political discourse, and through popular culture. One is framed as a space of fear and insecurity, and the other is framed as a space of safety and concealment. This then creates a self-fulfilling prophecy of segregation. Encounters with difference are minimised, undermining and destroying the urban fabric. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time on City Community Culture.